Direct from the astronomy capital of Australia comes the Astro Podcast. An irregular series of interviews with interesting astro people about the projects and passions that keep their eyes to the sky. Hi, Alison here from Astro Podcast. Today's podcast is coming to you from out in the field, which is quite different to the studio where we usually record. And when I say field, I mean the observing field at Waruna, which is the um, Astronomical Society of New South Wales field and where the South Pacific Star Party is being held. This year is the 20th anniversary of the South Pacific Star Party. I went to my first one 10 years ago, and um, my partner went to quite a few before that. So today's interviews will cover the history of the South Pacific Star Party with some interviews with a couple of uh, keen amateur telescope makers who won their divisions in telescope construction competition, and also some uh, sounds of the night and a little explanation of what happens at a star party for those of you that haven't actually been to one. So let's go to the first interview with Don Whiteman of Bintel and the Astronomical Society of New South Wales. Because this is recorded out in the field, you're going to hear some background noise, but I think it adds to the atmosphere. So enjoy. Yes, so the South Pacific Star Party... Uh, it's the 20th anniversary this year, 2012, and I'm here with Don who can tell us some history of the Star Party right back to day one. So how did it all come about, Don? Well, mostly it came about through a guy, one of our life members, a guy called Les Sara, and he was... Uh, he just started coming up to Waruna, uh, same time as me, back in 92. And he kept saying, you've got all this area and you guys aren't running a star party? Like, are you crazy or what? And of course, so he gets enough people convinced that, yeah, it's a great idea. And the star party idea is like, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. Yeah. So the first star party was in May in 1993. It would have been cold. It was very, very cold, and I remember we had a, a contingent of about 15 American visitors out here that included a whole lot of, you know, really well-known names in the astronomy world, uh, guys like Richard Berry and David Kriege from Obsession Telescopes and Pete Smitka from Portobello and, and uh, Ron Ravneberg, of course, who was a very dear friend to the Society and was a, uh, was a member of the Society. And uh, the Riz Millers and a whole heap of stack of people and Thane Bopp who brought out a, a Boppian telescope that had everybody sort of like, holy cow, how cool is that? You know, yeah, one-armed yeah. Stobsonian, you know. <laughs> so that was pretty good. And then um, it rained uh, the entire time. We had like 190 people turn up to the first star party, which we thought, holy cow, this is like so cool. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there were no facilities here. There was the what's now the bunkhouse was originally a storage shed and that was the only accommodation that we had apart from the house on the hill and then we had um, we had a marquee but much smaller than what we get these days yes and um, it was we uh, Pete Smitka from Portable one of one of the visiting Americans 
Oh, ran a book on uh, what time it would stop raining. <laughs> uh, it only cost a dollar, but you would yeah. win the whole pot. And I think he left the country with money. So, <laughs> so yeah, but, yeah, it was it was a, a really laid back star party. Yep. The talks in that in those days when we in the first two, uh, three star parties, when we used to have talks, we used to all get into cars and drive down to Ilford and use the community hall and uh, and drive back again. Um, I think on a, I think it was the third star party where uh, there was a slight ac- accident with uh, David Malan's projector when when a volunteer actually dropped it. Um, so the society uh, helped pay for it. But um, at that stage, we thought we need to do something different to. Uh, to, you know, the star party was growing as 260 people, 270 people, and it becomes a logistic nightmare moving that many people off-site for, you know, two hours and then moving back again. And yeah. you couldn't really have a flowing sort of event if you did it that way. So the the idea then was we moved in, we, we built a... Uh, there was a, a, a hall was built here, and then... Um, uh, which is still here, the, the, the meeting hall now, uh, which we've named the Max Gardner Hall in in, um, in memory of uh, Max Gardner, who was the treasurer of the society at the time, was a life member. Uh, Max donated the, the original amenities block that's there with the, the two uh, septic toilets and the two hot showers uh, as, a, as a gift to the society. Um, and... Uh, it, having hot showers meant we didn't have to have portaloos and porta porta yes. showers and things like that. Which, like, I can remember on the second star party towing a porta shower back home to Sydney where we rented it from, and I was driving an old uh, Pajero in those days, and it was strapped on the back, and it was like going up and down, up over through Bellsliner Road. This 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 portaloo that's what anyone else would have thought it was is like swaying from side to side. You know, it's just like really crazy. And then in the days when we used to we used to tow a um, Max always towed the generator up and I would always tow it back to Sydney. It used to cost like about 130 bucks in gas yeah. to tow a two and a half ton generator back to Sydney. That was pretty crazy stuff. So those those were the first few star parties. Once we put the hall on and that, it changed the dimension completely. Yeah. Um, we started to uh, get more and more people. We were we were approaching 300 people coming to a star party the logistics of a star party that size are very different than a star party of you know 120 130 yeah. people yeah, um, you have to take into consideration a lot of things um, one of them being water for yes. example yeah because um, we're not on mains no we, or... we live off tank water uh, it's much nicer than mains water mm. uh, because we, we don't have industrial pollution out here um, mm. and then the when you start thinking, okay, we've got 300 people registered, they're all going to take a four-minute shower or a three-minute shower, and then you have to calculate what the flow of the water is out of the shower heads that we use, the roses that we use in the shower, and how much water it's going to cost mm. to shower 300 people mm. over three or four days. Right. And in those days, the staff parties used to extend out to almost a week. Wow. You know, people would still be here on Wednesday. Mm. Um, and... You heard me talking with Chris Ross before. Um, Chris is another life member of the society, and we were um, we were um, Chris and I were the last two here after the uh, I think it was the third or the fourth star par- fourth star party. We were the last two here, and um, in the uh, 
late in the afternoon, we just the guys had come and taken the marquees away, and we were just getting ready to pack down, and we were going to head off on Thursday morning. It started snowing. <laughs> At least was when we still had the start parties in May, yeah. and it was late May, close to June, and we started to get Sago snow falling in the afternoon. Just as we were pulling our tents down, it started to Sago snow, so everything got dripping wet, and we had little balls of, of snow all over the place, which was... Waroona is pretty in snow. Um, you know, it is it is a very pretty place to see under snow. Um, and over the years, we've had lots and lots and lots of snow. Good on you, Brian. No problem. I'm glad you had a good time. I had a great time. Excellent. Excellent. Hopefully, I'll make it again. Come back sometime. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Back to your shop. Yeah, good on you. It's a guy from Canada. Yeah. Yep. What's even the Toronto people? Yep. Oh, cool. So, um, and about, yeah, visitors from overseas. We've always had people come from overseas. I think when you go out and look at the sky at Waruna, when it's clear and it's dark, um, look, even we measure our sky using a sky quality meter. In the last three nights that we've had, um, our sky's been 21.6, 21.7, 21.82 at one stage uh, on Friday night. Um that's as good as it gets anywhere in the yeah. world. Yeah. And to be able to go out there in this time of year, by midnight, you're standing outside and the Milky Way's casting a shadow, so it's pretty cool. You can you can understand why, you know, this place is pretty special. Um, the, um, when we um, started moving ahead with, with numbers and star parties, I think one of the years I was president of this society for a couple of years, and one of the years, the year you actually won a, uh, a oh, you remember that you won a, a Mead telescope yes. one year, um, and um, still going strong too. Excellent. And I, I remember that year we had about uh, three hundred and that was that the year it rained really heavy. No, that was no. the year after. The year yeah, after, right? Now, you won something the year after, or your boyfriend did? Uh, no, I won. I won something the year before, and then That's that right. year, and then that uh, the Christmas party. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I think it was a year after we had. Two thousand and one, we had rain, and and we had three hundred and sixty-five people or three hundred and seventy people. Um, as I say. The logistics of that, there's 42 children on site. Um, yeah. During those times, we used to run um, events for kids. During the day, we'd have them out making astrolabes or, yeah. or uh, planet spheres. In those days, we still used to have rocket displays. Yeah. Thank you, OH&S, you stopped that. Yeah. But um, they were lots of fun. I think that the, in 2001, our guest speaker was uh, Miriam Baltuk. From who was the uh, NASA representative in Australia, yeah. and she had with her a um, um, a guest who she asked could she bring along was a emeritus professor um, Stone Ed Stone from from JPL, who was the man in charge of um, the Cassini Division uh, project for NASA. And he came along, and it was really, really funny because he was standing outside watching rockets being launched. And here's a man that launches, you know, like space shuttles and things like that. And he's a real rocket scientist. And he's watching us playing around with little dick rockets, you know. And it it was really funny. And uh, he was watching it like a kid, and his eyes were like glowing with how cool this was. Yeah. And um, he asked Mike Smith from 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 Bintel. He asked Mike Smith. He said. Oh, could I have a go at launching one of your rockets? 
and because Mike used to let the kids come up and have a launch. Yeah. And Mike's quick reply, and Smithy's never slow with an answer or, or, or a quick reply, and his answer was, sure, I'll come over to your place and you can let me let off one of yours. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the guy's gone, deal, but don't let anybody see these pictures. <laughs> and so we have this really great photograph of this rocket going up with all this really dark grey smoke and flames coming out the back of it, and Ed Stone standing there with his hat on like a little kid going, woohoo! <laughs> So, of course, that got sent off to some people at NASA. <laughs> and then we got an email back from Miriam Baltuck saying Ed wasn't very impressed with the fact that these people in NASA, you know, the, and I think it was Carolyn Porco, who's one of the greatest planetary, like, women scientists in the world. Yeah. Um, planetary, she's in charge of Cassini. She was in charge of Giotto and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, she, I think we had comments from her along the lines of, hmm... I thought he was only supposed to do this sort of stuff at work. <laughs> it's really crazy. So, yeah, look, there's been colourful people come out to uh, star parties here. Yeah. Um, what do you think's been the biggest change in, in the sort of the technology and stuff since? Well, yeah, look, I mean, back in the beginnings of the star parties here, people were, there were still people using coal cameras and gas hyped film was only something relatively new to amateur astronomy. Mm. Um, it all used to get done by a woman who lived in, in Mount Druitt, a lady called Kay Ryan. And you would, you would uh, ring her up on a, on a Tuesday and say, hey, I'm going away on Friday, can I pick up some film? And she'd say, yep. So you could go and pick it up from her or she would courier it out and it would arrive in a little box with dry ice mm. and, and the film would be packed in dry ice. And you'd, you'd always, we always used to come to Waruna with little eskies, little six-pack, pardon me, six-pack foam eskies full of dry ice yep. and you'd have your film packed in that and you'd take your film out and give it about 15 minutes to sort of become a little bit pliable so it didn't crack and we yeah. rolled it on in, in the camera and you'd be sitting at your scope and you'd have a like a, a slide holder with a ronky film in it and you'd put that on the back of the film plane like where the film would sit to get your focus and then you'd load your load your film in wind off and then you'd shoot and straight after you finished shooting that night You'd rock on down to say Joe Couchy's caravan or something like that, yeah. And um, then you would um, develop the film straight away. You wouldn't yeah. like to get any water back in it. And if you didn't develop here, then you would put it back in dry ice and take it back home and do it as soon as you could when you get back to Sydney. Yeah. Um, so those sort of things. No. Um, there were one of the things with the star parties early. There were a lot of other clubs that used to come. There still are, and we appreciate it greatly. And it's the whole event is not an ASNSW; it's an astronomy event. Yeah, it's for everybody. Uh, we just happen to host it, um, and um, so it used to be that little clubs would, and there'd be you know eight or nine little clubs here, and they'd all be in their own little areas. And that these days it's more homogenous. Yeah, um, yeah. Everybody doesn't matter. You know, you can walk around and find people sitting in corners with other people talking, and you don't know where they're from, and and it's really really cool. Um, so um, that's been one of the changes. Technologically, now look, these days you've got much more people with computerised scopes, more and more people that are imaging. We, we actually have the second area of the, uh, up at the house, which which is completely dedicated to imaging. Um, there's a lot of serious imaging people up there. We've got a second section on the lower field where we we have. Um, 
we've boarded that off with uh, plantings because, uh, and I'll tell you about that in a moment, but mm. we've boarded that off with plantings so that that's protected more from wind and dust and car headlights and, and stray light and that's been dedicated for people that want to do imaging and that, that was pretty well populated this weekend there was a lot of people over there imaging and um, yeah, one of the guys that won a prize takes all of his images from there so um, uh, in fact that was main prize winner he, he's um, he's uh, images were taken from there a guy called Mark Adams um, and um, so that changes with that technology changes are things that, that have um, that have made a big difference over the years um, and then you've got um, so yeah look technology in astronomy has been great I've been really fortunate enough working in the industry to witness it firsthand as it goes on actually it's been nice I've actually paid parts in, in some of the developments that happen um, with different companies um, you know, um, the times that I've spent in different uh, telescope factories, you know, looking, working on telescopes and things like that, like ha- spending a lot of time in, in uh, telescope factories in the US watching new, de- new designs and, and um, having a bit of a hand because it's nice to be a, an astronomer, like a using astronomer working in this industry because you can... You can do advice to people when they they uh, start coming up with crazy ideas that engineers will, yeah. <laughs> um, that have no idea what astronomy means or, or how it all works. And you've got this idea of how it all works, and your engineering's not too bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can say to them, you know, hey, this has got to happen, that's got to happen sort of thing, or here's an idea, here's an idea. And you sometimes see those ideas incorporated into the, the final product, which is nice to see. But the technology changes in the last, say, 20 years in astronomy, as We've gone from bringing ice packs full of of that up here to um, using um, the latest CCD cameras that are cooled by themselves, you know, with, mm. with internal cool internal thermal cooling. Um, so um, yeah, that's that's been a major change. The other other major changes that have happened with with astronomy is that with the involved the heavily in the heavy involvement of China now in in mid range. Uh, telescoping means that the cost has come down dramatically and um, whilst China's a good factory for everybody else who designs it, um, they're they're coming out with some relatively good quality stuff now. They haven't got a clue what they're doing because they're not that advanced on astronomy but their engineering stuff's starting to get to the stage where it's not too bad. You you know that you're going to get a a, a good telescope that'll work out of the box yeah. and, and work like that all the time. Um, there's always going to be a top end in telescopes and they're very small companies that produce that sort of stuff and you get on a waiting list and wait for it. But yeah. um, those changes in the top end have only come about through starting... You know, in, It's a nice thing with astronomy that everybody starts without a bloody clue and, and I mean, exactly. and, and they spend, you know, whatever time they spend in it, like it could be a lifetime and, and things like that. And at the at, at the end of that life lifetime in astronomy, they still haven't got a bloody clue because <laughs> yeah. there's just that much to know. And but they'll be a little bit wiser than when they started. Uh, the the really nice thing in amateur astronomy, um, and I've known this from um, having been like a telescope maker and things like that, where. Um, 
if you come up with an idea of something for a telescope design, the, the first thing you should do is get it published yeah. wherever you can um, for as many Good people morning. to read. Um, so, yeah, the, the first thing you'll do if you, if you uh, come up with a new idea is, of course, get that idea published for everybody to read about mm. because somebody before you got their ideas published so that you could read about it to yeah. start reading those books in the first place. Yep. And it's nice to see that you design something and then two years down the track you see an article in a magazine um, where it's based on your design but there's been these additions to it that you think, wow, why didn't I think of that? But somebody else did and they haven't bloody patented it and they're not worried about the copyright too much and yeah. they'll allow you know you can you just go off and build it yeah. and then you write to them and say hey they know you're not going to make 200,000 of them, yeah, them right. you know you're not going to profit off their idea you're just making yourself a better scope that's yeah. the whole that's the whole um, basis of amateur astronomy is a sharing of knowledge and that yeah. and that's what makes it so much fun it's a great hobby to be in uh, it's been a great career to work yeah. in, believe me you know, it's that's lot, amazing it's just yeah. so much fun and and um, you know you wake up in the morning and you don't think oh shit I've got to go to work you wake up in the morning you think hey work so what you know it's yeah. another day yeah. it, it could be a bastard of a day but it could be a great day and you don't know but it's never going to be yeah it's not going to be horrible. a boring day yeah it's yeah, not going to be boring right. and it's not going to be oh my god do I have to do this tomorrow again so, thank you um, so yeah look it's, it's, it's fun like that um, we'll wrap it up with asking you the um, one last question. What has been the most amazing thing that you've seen here? It's very open-ended. It could be anything. <laughs> What's the most interesting thing that I've seen here? Yeah. Is that in people or in this uh, guy? Whatever. This was like if you're going to say, oh, I saw someone do a nudie run or something. <laughs> I think, now, yeah, one of the most amazing things, and, and there's a photograph of this that, that, yeah. that's really cool. I'll have to find it. Um, and um, um, in my time that I've been at ASNSW, yes. and, and I've been here a while, um, I've made lifelong friends. Um, some of them are just people that you... You know, yeah, we all look crazy and we all look a bit weird, but we all get on so well together. And um, in that time, we've lost some of those friends. Yeah. Um, and it was one of those friends that we lost, uh, a guy called Scott Mellish. And it, Scott was a, a sketcher that yeah. used to sit sit up. When I first came to Ilford, there was a, a uh, large rectangular box longer than it was wider so it was about 1.2 meters square by 2.4 meters high so it was a sheet of plywood yeah <laughs> it was four sheets of plywood yeah. made into a box right and i always used to wonder what it was it was painted brown in those days and it was called the tardis <laughs> and one night I was walking past and one of the sides of the TARDIS was folded down and sitting in the TARDIS was Scott Mellish <laughs> sketching. In those days he had a C8 and he moved on to a 16-inch a, uh, Dobsonian, which he called the coffin, and uh, because you could take the top end off it, the bottom end off it and sleep inside of it. <laughs> and um, one of my favourite memories of Waruna 
mm. is seeing Scott Mellish standing by the coffin um, out on the field with about four inches of snow all around him. Oh, right. And it was bucketing down snow at the time. <laughs> and Scott was dressed in his heavy-duty winter winter uh, freezer suit that he used to wear and his big Russian rabbit skin hat and uh, stand there yelling out, well, I'm ready for it. What about you guys? <laughs> so that's probably one of the craziest things I've ever seen. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. It's, it's a friend. That's what, what the craziest thing I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. In the sky, there's always crazy things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even some of the meteorites that went off this week, some of the meteors that came through this weekend. Yeah. Lots of fireballs. Yeah, uh, yeah. Lots of really big, slow meteors that burn out big scorch marks yeah. in the sky. It's been a great weekend. Oh. Well, Thanks Don, for the interview. Thank you. Pleasure. So much. Good on you. Some of you listening won't have ever been to a star party, so let's have a chat about what exactly happens. Um... People will come with their telescopes or without their telescopes. And in the case of the South Pacific Star Party, quite a few families with kids also uh, come along. There'll be an observing field where telescopes are set up by people and strict lighting conditions are kept. Uh, In Waruna's case, um, there is no white lighting allowed, uh, no cars to be moved around. You have to have your car certified that you can lock it without lights going on if you're going to park it on the field to uh, uh, power your scope. During the night, there will be star tours, which means that you can go to a specific telescope and someone there will be leading a guided tour of the sky depending on what's out there. We were really lucky this year in that the uh, um, yeah, lyrids were also happening at the same time. So even if you weren't looking through a telescope, it was fabulous to be able to look up and see meteors flashing across the sky as well. Also, during the day, there'll be people with their solar scopes out, so there's always something to do. Uh, at the South Pacific Star Party, there was a few lectures as well, and there's a swap meet and a vendor stall thing where people uh, and telescope shops and whatever sell their stuff. Um, what I like about the South Pacific Star Party too is that on Saturday night they have a lucky door uh, draw followed by a fabulous spit roast dinner which you pay for beforehand and uh, get to sit down with a whole bunch of people that you might know or might not know and talk astronomy which is always a lot of fun Um, and apart from that it's just a wonderful um, atmosphere that runs from Thursday to Sunday lunchtime basically Um, Thursday lunchtime to Sunday lunchtime and you know everyone pitches in to do their bit as well as enjoy what's in the sky and of course at Waruna uh, at Ilford it's the sky there is uh, as good as the sky we have here in Coonabarabran mostly almost so uh, and this this year was absolutely perfect for all nights uh, observing and uh, we were very very lucky to see some wonderful stuff. So here's some sounds of the night before we go on to our interviews with our telescope makers. Telescope, when you come up, you can hold on to any part of the ladder and you will lean in and what you're going to see, I'm going to draw it for you. So stand by for a second. 
that's not a good place for glasses because I'm going to kind of get okay, things from right. here. No, that's a good one. Got a pen? Yep. Yeah. Yes, you can go and get another chair. That's a good idea, Helen. Yeah. And listen, but Mark Notary's over there. Mark Notary, are you on the field? He's meant to be doing sky tours. He's got a little telescope down here, so you wouldn't have to keep going up and down the ladder all night. And I'll show you anything you want. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. I can see the galaxy. Yeah. Now, what I'm going to do is draw a sketch. But I'll do it while I'm at the eyepiece, because otherwise I'll do it wrong. Galaxy is a fuzzy thing, so you've got a central concentration and then you've got fuzzy stuff here. Okay. Then you've got the supernova, so the outskirts of the galaxy that you're not really seeing comes out further, and the supernova's down here at 7 o'clock. And then out to the right and down, you've also got another pair of stars over here that's further apart than the supernova is from the centre of the galaxy. I think that's about right. And then further out, you know, there's other stars. There's one out there and one out there. But just have a look at the separation between these two, and that gives you an idea of where to look for the supernova. So um, 6 o'clock is straight down from here. So you're here at about 7 o'clock. Okay? And a technique that astronomers use when something is quite faint is averted vision. If you look straight at it, it's hard to see. If you look away a little bit, it's easier to see. If you look straight back at it, it disappears again. It's to do with the eye. I'll tell you more about it if you want to know. And the other thing is your focus. Everybody's eyes are different. So here we've got the focus knob. If you're left-handed or right-handed, you can twirl that around to make it just right for your own eyes. I'm here with Chris Beaumont. Yes. From Adelaide. And Chris won the... Oh, well, what prize was it that you won? A telescope maker and accessories award. Okay. And what is it that you actually made? I made a German equatorial mount. Right. And out of um, pop sticks? Not quite, no. I made it out of um, offcuts of aluminium um, and stainless steel and brass. Okay. What do you... Uh, is this um, something that you are a professional at? Or? No, not at all. No, totally an amateur. Um, I'm actually a commercial photographer by trade. Right. And this is my evening hobbies, is to go to the workshop and use my lathe. Okay, so they said this took about three to four years. Yes. What possessed you four years ago to say, I am going to make an equatorial mount? Okay. German, sorry. German, German equatorial mount, yes. That's right. German equatorial mounts are really expensive. Right. And I couldn't afford one. Okay. So I figured I'd make one, um, mm -hmm. as I said, using offcuts of metal and stuff. Ironically, in the end, it's probably cost me more than I could have bought. I would have thought so, yes. yes. <laughs> However, it was dragged out over three or four years, so that was good. Yeah. Right. So where did you start? When did I start? No, where? Where? Oh, where? Yep. Um, that's a really good question. I can't remember now. Probably, I think, building the base. Yep. Um, to mount the uh, what's called the right ascension drive, so it tracks the rotation of the Earth. Yep. Um, and then sort of built bits around it from there, and okay. then added in the motors and the electronics and what have you. Right. So, I mean, you must have had some kind of experience with, you know, using lathes and fitter and turner or something. No, some stage, no, or? I did metalwork in year eleven at school, and that wow. was the last time I'd, I'd done any turning. That is self-taught. Quite amazing. Quite amazing. 
And it took three to four years just because you messed it up a lot or just because no. you couldn't afford the pieces? or No, no, it was mainly just because I was making it all up out of my head. Um, I okay. never do plans for anything. So, uh, And also, of course, trying to fit it in around work and in the winter when it's freezing in my workshop, I tend not to go in there very often. Wow. So, yeah, just a project in the evenings. Well, we'll have um, pictures of this on the Astro Podcast site. Um, and do you have any advice for anyone who wants to make something similar? Go for it. I thought Just, you were going to say yeah, seriously. No, no, I really enjoyed it. And using it is an absolute pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't have to do anything as fancy as this. You can just make a very simple one. Um, and you'll just enjoy doing it. Yeah. And then when you use it, you think, wow, I made it myself. I must have to say, it's, it is quite beautiful. Quite yeah, beautiful. I spent a lot of time polishing it because it looks shiny and pretty. It does, it does. And then it has that um, apple white... Yes. Yes. with the chrome. With the chrome, yeah, yeah. Yeah, So you've gone for a lovely design on it. Thank you. Well, thanks very much, Chris, and congratulations. Thank you very much. Thanks. I'm here with Ellen Cancross from Darwin. Darwin, yes. Darwin, and and you came second in the... um, Yes, I can the always forget the, the telescope name. making. Telescope and accessories. Award. Yeah. Yes. And tell me about your telescope or what it, you made. It's a 56 centimetre or 22 inch F4.5 folded Newtonian reflector. And what's special about this? You don't have to use a ladder. You can reach all points in the sky standing on the ground with the telescope. That is a really, really good thing. Especially, I mean, for someone like me, I have MS and I don't like climbing up and down ladders off all yeah. my so. Yeah, well, the reason why it's a folded Newtonian is the first when I first made it, it was a normal uh, right-angle Newtonian. Mm-hmm. And the first night I used it, I fell, I fell oh, backward no. down the steps and I broke a bone in my foot. Oh, so I thought, I'm going to have to come up with a better idea. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> like, like where I stay on the ground. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and after a bit of thought, inquiries, talking to people, I come up with this idea. And instead of the secondary mirror being mounted at 45 degrees like it does in the normal Newtonian, this one's mounted at 22 and a half, half degrees off the axis. Yeah. So instead of the light path coming out at right angles from the side of the tube, it comes out lower down the tube at a different angle. Yeah. And um, did I hear that this is the one with the guitar strings that are... Yes. It's the um, the secondary is held by what they call a wire spider. Instead of a normal... Uh, veins that most of them use. This one uses, uh, well, for want of a better word, guitar strings. They're not actually guitar strings. Oh, right. They're they're 22 gauge stainless steel wire. Okay. But it looks very much like a guitar string. Right. Okay. And there was something special about the mounting at the top. I can't remember what it was. Yeah, it's um, the top ring. Yep is made very lightweight by using three millimetre plywood. Right. With a Warren brace. Okay, well, can you describe what a Warren well, brace a Warren is? Brace, a Warren brace is uh, a W brace inside the timber. Ah, okay, and I can see that. In between, there's two round discs. Yep. And in between there's bracing um, that form, if you look down in plan section, the letter W. Yes. All the way around the 
like a series of W's all the way around the ring. Right. And that's what strengthens it. Okay, and are they in wood as well, or are they...? Yeah, they're three millimetre plywood as well. It's just ordinary um, interior plywood okay, that so... they use in doors. All right, and how long did it take to, um, to make it? The, uh, well, the telescope's been in, in existence for about 10 years, but this is the fifth major modification. This right. is its fifth remake, and from when I started to when I finished was about two months. Right, okay, mm. okay. And does it have a name? <laughs> uh, well, when I first got the mirrors and everything for it, I called it Obsession because it was an obsession with me to get a yeah. large telescope, but some other bugger trademarked the name. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, there's a uh, commercial telescope called an Obsession. Yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> All right. And um, just curious, night skies in Darwin. Are you uh, in Darwin itself? Because it's very humid up there. Yeah, so. we're in Darwin, but we do our observing about 70 kilometres outside of Darwin because the... Um, there's a lot of light pollution. Yeah, in yeah, Darwin I wouldn't have thought they care about and, it. And um, we go about 70 kilometres southeast of Darwin. Yep. Past a place called Humpty Doo. Yes. A lot of people know where Humpty yes. Doo is. <laughs> but um, there it's about the same as what it is here. Oh, lovely. But we can't observe during the wet. That's from. November through till about this time of the year because it's just as likely that the sky will either be cloud covered yes or cloud cover will come up while we're set up right so we don't bother and how do you cope with the humidity I mean I guess with this one it wouldn't be too bad but still humidity and telescopes don't go together the humidity has been a bigger problem here than what it is in Darwin Uh, we've had serious dewing problems here and these our telescopes are not set up with demisters Yes. Uh, we get very little dewing of the telescopes. During the dry season, the humidity is around about 10 to 15%. Okay. And we get very little problem with dewing. Right, right. Hence, the telescopes aren't equipped to handle it. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Alan. That's okay. Thanks for listening to the Astro Podcast. Why not leave a comment and rating on iTunes so other people can listen in too? If you want to nominate someone to be interviewed, then send an email to alison at astropodcast.com and she'll do her best to make it so.